Why is it that some churches seem to be thriving while other churches seem to be dying? As a pastor, I have an inside track of getting to know pastors and churches almost on a weekly basis. It's a question that crosses my mind quite frequently. How is it that churches located in the same community, sometimes even on the same street, can almost feel like polar opposites if you were to walk through their doors? You know, one is full of life and growth. Well, another one is slowly decaying year after year. Well, I guess in one sense, you have to know what your metrics are, right? I mean, how are you going to determine what a thriving and a dying church is? Well, it's, it's not uncommon for people to judge a church's success much like they might a college football program. For example, we tend to look at numbers. Numbers of weekly attendees in the stands, or numbers of the weekly attendees in the pews. Numbers of ticket sales at the box office, and numbers of church giving records and the annual church budget. We can also tend to judge a church's success or spiritual pulse by how young or how old the majority of the people are that make up that church. So, the older a congregation is, perhaps the financial giving is up because they have deeper pockets. But the older a congregation is could also mean that they aren't reaching the generation that is coming behind them. There are no more sounds of a baby crying coming from the nursery. There are no elementary boys being asked to calm down by their parents. There are no preschoolers to be seen, not even one teenager. Much like an empty nester couple staring at one another in an eerily quiet house on a Friday night, aging congregations can sometimes find themselves doing much the same, even on a Sunday morning. They're able to continue sitting in their pew, but it doesn't appear anyone's replacing the seats of saints that have gone on to be with the Lord. You might even say an older congregation could be the result of older saints neglecting to pass on the Christian faith or the gospel baton to their children and grandchildren, to their nieces and their nephews, even to their neighbors that just live right across the street. And what's the result? Well, have some have said, if you don't ever hear babies crying in the church, you're probably sitting in a dying church. On the other hand, a younger congregation could give the impression that exciting things are happening. Young people tend to influence young people, and their vibrant energy combined with their big hopes for the future can generate an atmosphere of bright optimism in a church's life. Yet churches full of young people can also bring with it a lack of wisdom, a lack of seasoned experience wading through the difficult waters of the Christian life. And not to mention, for the masses of youth today, at least here in the American culture, 
in the millennial generation, there's a tendency to lack any sense of long-term commitment. From casually changing jobs, casually changing relationships, casually changing apartment addresses and roommates, to pushing the idea of marriage even further down the road. Any firm sense of commitment to stay in one place for very long can create churches that feel more like transient malls. Lots of traffic and activity, but no real sticking power. Without realizing it, a church full of young folks that don't actually commit and stay can become a church without any strong sense of identity or long-term purpose. So do metrics like finances and age of a congregation accurately tell us how fruitful or fruitless a church is doing? When his book, The Autopsy of a Deceased Church, author Tom Rayner once interviewed former members of churches that had eventually died. He recorded some of the common things he heard from those men and women as they reflected on the funeral their church had experienced. Here's what they said. Quote, We were going through the motions. Everything we did seemed to be like we were in a rut or a bad routine. We became more attached to our ways of doing church than we did asking the Lord what he wanted us to do. We were playing a game called church. We had no idea what we were really supposed to be doing. We stopped asking what we should be doing for fear it would require too much effort or change. Friends, those are some real human beings. That's not just hypotheses. Those are the words from people who have seen their churches die. So why is it that some churches located in the same community seem to be thriving while other churches seem to be dying? Well, this morning we are in the second of a three-part sermon series on why Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church exists. Last week, we looked at the Bible's priority of knowing God's truth and how the scriptures plainly tell us the awesome responsibility and humbling privilege that we have as Christians to form local churches. Local churches that are to shine like a lighthouse in a dark world as we stand as pillars of God's truth. You remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15? I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That means as a church, we are to be a body of believers who commit our lives to believing God's truth, proclaiming God's truth, 
and obeying God's truth, all for the glory of God. Today we look at the goal of what a local church must strive towards if it seeks to be a vibrant and thriving community of God's truth and God's love. To do that, I'm going to answer four questions. I'm going to do my best to answer them. This will serve as an outline for our time this morning. Number one, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? Number two, what is a local church? What is a local church? Number three, what is the goal of church membership at CCBC? What is the goal of church membership at CCBC? And number four, this will be brief, but it will be one of the more practical aspects of the talk. What are dangers that can threaten meaningful church membership at CCBC? Number one, what is a Christian? I'd encourage you to ask people that question over the next month. Ask someone at the mall or the workplace, even in your own neighborhood. Write down their answers. I'd imagine you get a whole host of responses. Here's the definition we were going to work with this morning. A Christian is a follower of Jesus Christ who possesses the indwelling presence of God's Spirit, whose life increasingly shows the fruits of faith, love, and obedience to God. Now let me be crystal clear. In order to become a Christian, you must first believe the gospel, the gospel message. That means the gospel is not a lifestyle. The gospel is not the music you listen to on Christian radio. The gospel is not wearing WWJD bracelets for all my 90s folks in here, or attending a Bible study, or bowing your head respectfully when someone is praying. The gospel is not even God has a good plan for your life. No, the gospel is a message about a real historical person who lives even today. It's a message that unless you hear it, and unless you believe it for yourself, you will be eternally damned before a holy God. You see, the word gospel has been so confused in Christian circles, but it's actually a lot more simple than you realize. The word gospel means glad tidings or good news. It's the good news about God's merciful provision for mankind's greatest problem. Paul wrote to the Corinthians a summary statement of what the gospel is all about. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day accordance with the Scriptures. 
That means as Christians, we first and foremost believe what God says about our badness, our wickedness. God says that our evil and arrogant rebellion against him is a really big deal. Listen, there is no small sin to commit because there is no small God to sin against. He's holy and grand and big and majestic, and every sin against him is a big deal. Do you want to know how bad our sin is? Our sin is so bad that it took the death of his only son, the sinless and suffering servant, Jesus Christ, to die in our judgment place. You see, our sin separates us from fellowship with our good God. Our sin makes us think the world exists ultimately for us, our joy, our plans, and our glory. Listen, sin gets us so bent backwards that it makes us call what is good evil and even what is evil good. Sin makes us feel and think and love backwards. We are messed up. Apart from God rescuing us and turning us back around, giving us that heavenly chiropractor job to straighten us back up again, we are like drunk drivers heading down the wrong lane, going 90 miles an hour against the morning traffic. You see, our sin, beloved, causes us to love, to treasure, to worship, and to care about ourselves and our creation more than our holy and sovereign creator. Sin makes us ignore God's convictions in our life. You ever had that moment where you're listening to your favorite song and you hear your mom or your dad or your spouse? Hey, I need your help. We act like we can't hear them. That's what sin makes us do with God. We want to turn up the volume so we can't hear the convictions on our life. Sin makes us care nothing for God's holiness, but only for our happiness. One author has said, sin is but the defiance of God's holiness. Earlier, David Nixon read from the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. I don't know whether you know this or not. If you are over the age of 60, you will probably shake your head and remember these days. Historically, true gospel-preaching churches read the Ten Commandments in their worship gatherings. So frequently and so often that the average unbeliever who was invited to church could recite the Ten Commandments back to the average Christian just 40 to 50 years ago. It was something that was talked about. It was something that was upheld. But in case you've grown dull towards them, let us be reminded this morning of what we heard from Exodus chapter 20. You see, the Ten Commandments aren't some old fuddy-duddy house rules or some stuffy church list of do's and don'ts. No, the Ten Commandments are a bright sign of God's perfect standard of holiness. They give us a picture of what God is like, his sovereignty, 
his holiness, his jealousy, his justice, his good creation of authority and the home and God's love and compassion that he has towards all people made in his image. Uh, These commandments came down from heaven for mankind to understand something of the holiness and righteousness and loving character of God. But friends, the Ten Commandments are not just a lofty list of do's and don'ts that tell us something about God. The Ten Commandments stare at us like a criminal's indictment on Judgment Day. They serve as a mirror, not a foggy mirror, not a mirror where you can kind of look prettier or more handsome at different angles and different light shades. It's a mirror that shows our nakedness and our sinfulness in all its darkness. Take, for example, look at your life over the last week. Think about those Ten Commandments. How have you done in obeying just those ten? And I'm not saying keeping these commandments when others are paying attention. They're keeping them in private when no one is watching except God alone. How have you been doing in obeying these commandments from the very secret depths of your heart? Jesus, when he's preaching on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, reveals to us that God cares not just about the letter of the law, but the intent behind it. Which means that God cares not about merely our actions, what we do or don't do outwardly, but he cares about what we meditate on inwardly. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Verses 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment, right? We just heard that from Exodus 20. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman or a man with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Friends, you stare and I stare at the ten commandments alone the only thing you're going to get is bad news we are really really bad and we're not as bad as we could be because God restrains us from being so but God's x-ray vision of us is frighteningly bad we're all sinful through and through Regardless of your ethnicity, your socioeconomic background, your political affiliation, we are all born in sin. And we are wicked and rebellious in our will, in our thoughts. Friends, we are bent towards self in sin. And we are not bent towards God and his righteousness. That means the only thing we deserve is God's eternal punishment demonstrating his justice towards sinners like you and me. But friends, we are in a Christian church. We're not in a Jewish synagogue. We have good news. 
The good news is that God has done something for us since Mount Sinai. He has done something amazing for sinners like you and I. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth, and he perfectly obeyed his heavenly father. He fulfilled the intent and the extent of God's law perfectly. Christ willingly went to the tree to die under the punishment, the wrath of God towards sinners in our place. And he did that for everyone who would turn from their sins and trust in him. And on the third day, as we heard earlier from 1 Corinthians 15, God raised him from the dead. Jesus got up more easily than you got up out of your bed this morning. He was seen and heard by hundreds of eyewitnesses. He ascended into heaven, and he promises to return again to judge the living and the dead and to save all those who are trusting in him. Listen, if you're here today and you recognize your badness, I don't even need to convince you of it. God has already revealed that to you. Then call upon him. He's rich in mercy. He is more near than you realize. Seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he be near. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Turn from your sins and spend the rest of your life tracking down how much God has loved you through Jesus Christ. So believing the gospel, the gospel message according to the Bible, is what makes us a Christian. It's what characterizes every genuine follower of Jesus. The gospel truly is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Romans 1 verse 16. But that begs the question, how do we know who has actually believed? How do we know if someone has passed from death to life and are truly saved? What are the fruits? What is the evidence of someone that truly belongs to Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus told his disciples that he would depart from this world, but that he would not leave us as orphans. He would send forth his Holy Spirit, the helper, the spirit of truth, and he would come to live inside of all of God's children. He promised that God's spirit would make his home in us, inside the hearts of every repentant sinner who trusts in Christ. You see, every sinner that God saves, he causes to be born again. Uh, Friends, one thing that you'll hear me do a lot as I'm leading us to think biblically about salvation and the church and everything else I can think of in Scripture is that it's perfectly fine to use the word saved. It's biblical, it's true, it's a theologically appropriate word. But one word I want us to do is echo Jesus and Peter and Paul and James. And we speak more about being born again. Because we treat salvation sometimes like a credit card. Yeah, I swiped that. I said the prayer. I walked down the aisle. I cried and meant it. My pastor signed his name on the back of the Bible. And guess what? None of those things are clear evidence you have been born from above. None of those things guarantee that the spirit of the triune God has awakened your dead heart. 
So friends, we don't want to ask, did you make a decision one time in your life? Or were you sincere? The question we want to ask is, is have you been born again? Born again through the living and abiding Word of God. 1 Peter 1, 23. Uh, This is the spiritual miracle greater than a natural human birth called regeneration. I want us to start using words like this, friends. Don't be intimidated by biblical language. Regeneration. It's the supernatural work of God whereby he takes out our heart of stone that cannot respond to God's spirit, at least in love. And he gives us a heart of flesh that desires him. He makes us new creations. He causes us to be new people. He changes us from the inside out. And friends, this is a sovereign work of Almighty God. Salvation is not something your mom or dad can do to you. Salvation is not something the pastor can kind of like do some weird witchcraft voodoo sprinkling mechanism and whoo, you're saved, like cough on you. You're just going to get sick. No, there's nothing I can do to you. There's nothing you can do to anybody that can make them a Christian. This is something God does. What did Jesus say in John 3, verses 7 and 8? Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, unless you get discouraged and think, wow, you're talking about God makes you new and born again. I mean, don't Christians still sin, Blake? Don't Christians grow at maybe different speeds and depths? Well, of course, that's why I'm a pastor. (laughs) If that wasn't true, I'd be out of a job. I'm here to help spiritual babies become young men and women, and young men and women become oak trees in the faith until I go to Jesus or you beat me to him. That's that's part of the Christian life. We all got to start somewhere. This process of maturity is called progressive sanctification. It's the right type of progressive, by the way. If you want to learn more about progressive sanctification, it's It's found in our statement of faith. I'd encourage you to begin studying it more intently in your own time. It's it's the work of God's Spirit causing our thoughts to be aligned with God's thoughts. We begin to think like God, talk like God, love like God, because God's Spirit renews our minds in accordance with God's will. This is how God makes us ultimately more like Jesus. God's Spirit comes to live in us in order to make us more like God's Son. You see, the goal of our salvation in one sense is being with God in heaven. What did did Paul say? I would rather depart. Come on, women's Bible study, you got this. I would rather depart and be with Christ. That's true. That's right. We should be longing to be with our heavenly bridegroom. But in another sense, the goal of our salvation is God making us like Christ. For I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What is that good work? It's 
It's God making you like his son. Now, as Christians, are we made just like Jesus all in an instant? All in a moment? Well, no. I've, I've heard it asked before, Pastor Blake, why doesn't God just make us just like Jesus like that? I don't know. Ask him when we get to heaven. For whatever reason, God gets more glory through the slow, painful, spiritual puberty called sanctification as he takes filthy, dark rebels and makes them beautiful gems in his temple. Don't ask me. That's his plan, and he's going to get glory for it. He purges us of our sin. He prunes us. He disciplines us. He tests and refines us. But it's for our good and for his glory. And friends, God's rarely in a hurry. He does this over a lifetime. Salvation is both a past, present, and future work of God's grace in our lives. We are saved by God's grace. We are being saved by God's grace. And we will be saved by God's grace. And friends, words like these, promises like these, a God like that, a Savior like that, should stir us up to help others follow Jesus too. Where do we follow Jesus? How do we follow Jesus? Where do we find biblical followers of Jesus? In a local church. Which leads to point number two. What is a local church? What is a local church? Well, a definition of a local church that would be helpful for you to get to be more familiar with uh, is used in Jonathan Lehman's book, Church Membership, How the World Knows Who Represents Jesus. He says this, A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Let me unpack that. This will be the densest part of the sermon. If the first part was dense, well, you're going to have to re-listen to this again because this is where we're about to jump into the deep end of understanding what we call ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. In Jesus' earthly ministry, really right out the gate, he announced that the inauguration of God's kingdom had come. And it had come through the message he preached. We read in Matthew 4, verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therefore, the preaching of the gospel is really the announcement. It's the worldwide broadcast system that is unashamedly declaring that a king has arrived. But unlike some kings and governors, other respected officials you can just kind of ignore, flip the channel, hit the mute button on, unfriend off of social media, this king and his kingdom demands a response. Repent and believe. However, we also read in the Gospel of Matthew that God's kingdom and his rule and his authority would not only be revealed by the proclamation of the gospel or the arrival of a king, but his kingdom would be revealed through the people 
he places on earth to represent him. These people are called to preach the gospel and evaluate and render judgments on heaven's behalf. Who on planet earth has been given, has been entrusted with the authority to represent heaven to the nations? Well, in the, time, in the Gospel of Matthew, three times, Jesus identifies these people as those who gather in his name. Those he calls the church. The kingdom people, his kingdom people, he is building in which the very powers of death cannot overcome. So open your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We were there last week briefly. We're going to be there a little longer today. If you're using the chair Bibles provided, it should be found on page 480. 480, Matthew chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 13 to 19. Matthew 16, 13 to 19. Follow with me. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here Jesus affirms Peter's confession of who Jesus is. Jesus then tells Peter that this revelation, this understanding, did not come from Peter's own intellectual muscles. He didn't just go off to kind of the Jewish university in the local town. No, Jesus says that this came from God's supernatural work of illumination. God himself turned on the lights in Peter's dark mind to see and savor who Jesus really is. Jesus then tells Peter that upon the apostles, including himself, and their confession of Jesus, that he will build his church. The word in the original language just simply means a gathering, an assembly of those who have been called by God out of darkness and brought into his marvelous light, those who he has sovereignly joined together as one people by the Spirit of God. You'll notice in Matthew 16, verse 19, that the apostles are then given an authority from Jesus to exercise the keys 
the kingdom. Now, what are the keys of the kingdom? Well, they're not exactly the keys to your Ford F-150 or your go-kart, if go-karts have keys like that. No, the, the keys are exercised through binding and loosing, Jesus says, which is really judicial language, where a verdict is rendered on someone's confession about Jesus. So here, Jesus said that the apostles will render a verdict. Uh, They will bind. They will affirm. They will listen to someone's understanding of who Jesus is, and they will give them a thumbs up if that confession is true, if it's accurate, if their minds have been illuminated by God. They will look at that person and say, as far as we can tell, you're one of us. Your faith is credible or believable. But the keys are also used to loose. That means to remove or release an affirmation of someone's profession of faith. They will give, in essence, a thumbs down. They listen to a person's understanding of Jesus, and they declare, based off what they hear, that that person is either still in unbelief or some other false teaching. Friends, that's the most important question you're ever going to have to answer. Who do you say Jesus is? You got someone coming up to your doorstep with elder whatever? Well, if they're not Reformed Baptist, which there's not a lot of us around here, they're probably a Mormon. If you ask a Mormon who Jesus is, they'll say a lot of true things about him, but they will not agree with you in all of what we believe about Jesus. So the apostles here are given this authority to give a thumbs up, thumbs down, bind or loose, based off what they hear someone say about Jesus, if they are indeed a follower of Christ. Again, that's the most important question you and I ever have to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? I'll turn over to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, just a few chapters over. Once you get there, just kind of zoom down really fast on Matthew 18, verse 18. I just want you to notice Matthew 18, 18. Jesus picks up the same language here, same gospel, same audience, Same language. Jesus picks up the same language again of binding and loosing. He refers to the keys of the kingdom in that sense. But this time he extends the authority from Peter and the apostles to the church. Verse 17. Why is this important? How does this have any relevance to your life and my life today? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever met someone who says they're a Christian? But when you look at their life, over a long pattern, you're scratching your head and wondering, are they really? How do you relate to someone who claims they know Jesus? Who claims they are going to inherit eternal life, but their life really shows little to no fruit? They live in unrepentant sin and actually rebellion to Jesus. I mean, where in Scripture does Jesus ever talk about what we might consider nominal Christianity? People who have a faith in Jesus, but really in name only. Almost like a good luck t-shirt that you wear. 
people who call themselves Christians, but their walk really doesn't match up to their talk. Well, Jesus did talk about this in Matthew 18, verses 15 and following. In Matthew 18, 15, we see Jesus' self-deception awareness program carried out through the process of loving church discipline. It's really the other side of the coin of meaningful church membership. You can't have one without the other. If you're going to have a church that actually practices meaningful church membership, you can't avoid Jesus' words in this passage. Jesus says, after a private correction in one-to-one conversations, verse 15, with a professing believer, and through the continued exhortations from a small circle of believers, verse 16, if they don't listen and repent... They are to, verse 17, tell it to the, say it together, tell it to the, and if he refuses to listen even to the, Jesus then says how to relate to them. He says, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. What exactly does Jesus mean here? Jesus is saying that the local church should treat that professing believer, it should relate to him or her as someone who is now outside the covenant community of faith. Someone, at least until they repent, that isn't demonstrating fruits of godly repentance. They don't really seem to appear to love Jesus more than their sin. In other words, according to Jesus, the local church has this type of authority given to them from heaven. It's not the pastors ultimately. It's not the deacons ultimately. It's not the search committee ultimately. It's not the personnel committee. It's not a mom or dad, not a family counselor, not the psychiatrist, not the Southern Baptist Convention, and not the local Baptist Association. According to Jesus, the local church has been given the final authority, spiritual authority, from Jesus to render a verdict, to render a judgment, to render a sober assessment, a humble evaluation on whether or not someone's profession of faith is credible or believable. That's why in verses 18 to 20, Jesus refers to the final act of loving church discipline or Excommunication just means to disfellowship as believers. Where the local church decides to no longer relate to this person as a fellow Christian. Now, if someone is excommunicated from the membership of a church, should they shun them? Kind of like some kind of colonial, archaic, scarlet letter? No. We should treat them with love and respect as a fellow image bearer of God. They're still a human being. Being cold and callous is not what Jesus is teaching here. But if someone has been excommunicated from the membership of a church and barred from partaking of the Lord's Supper, the dynamics of that relationship will look different. A local church, at least for that time, can no longer affirm their profession of faith. Because their confession of Jesus doesn't really match the fruit that their life is bearing. 
Here Jesus also connects the exercising of the keys of the kingdom. Did you notice? The gathering of the disciples. That means those disciples who gather in his name have Christ's own presence and authority with them. Now don't misunderstand me. We are not the Roman Catholic Church. They believe they uh, all hold the means of grace every time they administer the Mass or the Eucharist. That's blasphemy. That's a different gospel. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church officially, according to Rome's teachings that they've never ultimately denied, would say to join any other church beyond the Roman Catholic Church would be anathematized. In other words, the gospel I'm preaching this morning would have me either killed or kicked out if we went back four to 500 years ago. We are not saying that a local church is a perfect authority. Local churches are imperfect. We're still full of sinners, and we are fallible. Churches can get it wrong. Whether a lack of discernment or a lack of maturity, nonetheless, the local church still possesses a real authority in the life of a professing Christian. That's a huge statement. That'll stop traffic in many churches' conversations. The local church possesses a real spiritual authority over your life and my life if you are calling yourself a Christian. We live in America, in this individualistic age, where I don't like being told what to do. Brothers and sisters, Jesus comes with an authority, and he is Lord of heaven and earth, and he is your ultimate supreme authority. But he has given a delegated authority as well to represent him on behalf of heaven on earth, and that is through the church. This is Jesus speaking here. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 18, 20, did you see it? Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Well, how is this practically done? You know, if you've heard the keys of the kingdom this morning, you're like, nope, lost me about 20 minutes ago. That's all right. If you've ever observed baptism or the Lord's Supper ever in your whole life, if it was done rightly and properly and according to the rule of Scripture, you have seen in some way or another, at least by implication, the keys of the kingdom. You might say, well, well, how is that? Let me give you some teaching on baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is the one-time act of obedience whereby a person repents of their sins and trusts in Christ, and they make their profession of faith go public. They're telling the world, they're telling the community of faith that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and he has come to live in me. That's why Jesus says when you are baptized, you are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, you are putting on the team jersey. You are representing heaven to the world by being baptized in the name of our triune God. Matthew 28, 19. Baptism is a Christian's public announcement. It's like the news press, where you are telling others of your new identity and new citizenship in God's kingdom. Again, baptism doesn't save anyone. If your heart never changes, you just got wet. You just added to the water bill of that church's 
monthly bills. But baptism depicts, it displays the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus from the dead. When we go down under the waters, we are depicting spiritually how we are united to the death of Christ. And when we come out of the waters, we are depicting how we are united to the new life and the resurrection with Christ. You could even say when we observe a baptism, it is both a funeral service and a wedding ceremony all at the same time. The death to the old you and the rising to new life in Christ. Baptism is also the initiation rite or the front door into the membership of a local church. It is certainly true that baptism is an individual's act of obedience to follow Jesus. However, unless you're going to pull some weird church history stuff that only a few have tried and kind of wrote later on, you can't baptize yourself. I mean, you know, dropping back on a high dive doesn't count. Baptism is something done to you. It's done by someone who represents Jesus to you. It's a church's act of affirming that person's profession of faith is credible and thus depicting a believer's commitment to Jesus and a commitment to Jesus' church, those who gather in his name. Now, because of what baptism does depict, churches should think carefully biblically and cautiously about who they baptize. Does this person make a right confession of Jesus? Does this person display the first fruits of repentance towards God from sin and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ? Everything in question number one, basically. Does this person understand that baptism is the front door into church membership, where they now come under the authority and accountability of a gospel-preaching local church where believers encourage and comfort them, teach and correct and rebuke if necessary. You know, over time, Baptists have commonly coined the catchy phrase, baptism is a Christian's first act of obedience to Jesus. Well, beloved, I want to continue on with my stereotype of being overly picky here. Baptism is not the first step of obedience to Jesus. Like we read about the thief on the cross in Luke 23, repenting of your sins and believing the gospel is your first act of obedience to Jesus. That thief is in heaven more than any of us right now are, and he never got wet. So let's get the train right first. But baptism is the first public act of obedience in the fellowship of a local church where we are enfolded and affirmed by a body of believers who gather in Christ's name. Parents of young children, hopefully, Lord willing, this spring I'll be teaching more publicly about baptism and children and salvation and evangelism and all those exciting things that get me in trouble sometimes in these parts of the woods. But I want to encourage you, keep evangelizing your children. Keep praying for your children. Keep talking well of the church around your children. Teach them now how to follow Jesus in the fellowship of your family. And when they are ready, and when the elders of that congregation and the members of that church can confidently affirm their profession of faith, then we'll teach them how to follow Jesus in the fellowship of his church. 
They will go public with their faith, being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as they follow Jesus with other baptized followers of Jesus. Now, there's another place in Scripture that talks about, at least by implication, exercising of the keys of the kingdom. And that's when we partake of the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper is also a public New Covenant sign where those who have been baptized in Christ's name partake of the bread and the juice, thus symbolizing your union with Jesus, but also your union with other followers of Jesus. That's why the whole imagery in 1 Corinthians 10 about the bread and partaking of the bread together is depicting of our unity and oneness as a local church. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we, who are many, are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. That's why the Lord's Supper is not for non-Christians. The Lord's Supper is not a Billy Graham crusade where you run down and try to get saved by taking some bread and juice. No, that is not the gospel, and that is not what the Lord's Supper is for. The Lord's Supper is not a small snack to get you to lunch. No, the Lord's Supper is a visible reminder to believers that Christ died for us and that he promised to return for us again. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26, that we should take the Lord's Supper regularly. Here at CCBC, we do that currently once a month on the first Sunday of the month. For in the supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So how does baptism and the Lord's Supper have anything to do with our Christian lives and our membership in a local church? Think of it this way. Baptism takes the one, the repentant follower of Jesus, and brings them into the many. The Lord's Supper takes the many and brings them as one. In baptism, we affirm someone's confession of being united with Jesus, and in the Lord's Supper, we are continually overseeing one another's relationship with Christ and our relationship to one another. So again, here at CCBC, one of the things you'll notice when we partake of the Lord's Supper together, we will, as members, stand and recite the church covenant together. And that really just means that the church covenant is just serving as a continued reminder alongside the Lord's Supper when we renew our vows to one another as members of this church. I don't know about for you, but as a pastor, when I'm preparing my heart to take the Lord's Supper with you, and I'm looking back over those covenant vows, I'm convicted. And I'm refreshed. Because I need the body of Christ just as bad as you do. Again, one reason why we do this is so that we approach the Lord's Supper humbly and carefully. Paul says we must examine ourselves. We should examine ourselves individually our relationship with the Lord, and we should examine our relationship with other Christians in our local church so that we can partake in a worthy manner. Let me get real practical with you 
on how this really starts to put some teeth down into church membership. Before we partake of the Lord's Supper each month, you and I should examine our relationships and examine our hearts towards other believers. If you have bitterness or unresolved conflict between another Christian partaking of the same Lord's Supper in the same congregation, you need to first seek out that person and try to reconcile. We should not be storming the very table that reminds us of Christ's death for our sins, our sins of bitterness, our sins of hatred, our sins of cold-heartedness, our sins of gossip and slander, and yet act as if we didn't do it that week. We should be thinking carefully. Seek out reconciliation if possible. Ask for forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, work to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What is a local church? A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. You see, the local church, if we understand it biblically, it is imperfect, but it's a beautiful foretaste of heaven on earth. And how is this? Because the local church is God's people in God's place under God's rule. You know, some people might scoff at the local church, write it off because they had a bad experience. Maybe that's you here today. It's hard for you to show up in this church this morning. Or maybe you're a member of this church and it was difficult for you to do it because you've been burned and hurt. And some people then say, well, you know, a church of Christians, it's just whatever and whenever. As long as you love Jesus and love the Bible, it doesn't really matter. You can do this in your home, a restaurant. It doesn't really matter. And in one sense, we can fellowship with Christians anywhere at all times, right? But the Bible gives us a bigger and fuller picture than just kind of a random group of people that look just like you, who follow Jesus. Listen to a few of these passages in the New Testament about what the church is called. In John 10 and 1 Peter 5, Christ's people are called the flock of God for whom Christ loves and leads. In Acts 20 and Ephesians 5, the church is called the bride of Christ, for whom Christ's blood was shed for. 1 Corinthians 3 and Ephesians 2, the church is called the temple or dwelling place of the living God. In 1 Corinthians 12, the church is called the body of Christ, with many members having different functions, but all united to the same head. In Galatians 6 and 1 Timothy 3, the church is called the household of faith and the pillar and buttress of the truth. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that the church is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, who are like living stones being built as a spiritual house that offers sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Have you ever noticed it's not a Baptist thing? It's not a Southern thing when we call each other brother and sister. Do you know where that comes from? It doesn't come from Billy Bob Baptist Church. It's how Christians talk to one another in the Bible. It's the Bible's love language. If you're in Christ, Jack, you're my brother. And I love you. Katie, if you're in Christ, you're my sister. Roy, you're like a dad to me. I didn't say granddad, see? The Bible talks about brothers and sisters, moms and dads. Why? Because when you put your faith in Christ, you're adopted into the same family. We get the same heavenly father and we have the same elder brother, 
Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, the local church is the place where the world gets a glimpse of what heaven is like. The local church is where the world sees something of what Jesus is like. The local church is where Christians commit their lives together through their common faith in Christ because of the love that God has first shown us. Again, local churches are messy, right? They're imperfect. Oftentimes, we put a fog for the world not to see Christ. But friends, a true church that preaches the true gospel and rightly administers baptism and the Lord's Supper and makes membership meaningful is a beautiful thing in God's sight. You see, the local church is God's plan to show the world who represents Jesus through our lips and our lives. So if you're here today and you believe the gospel, you consider yourself to be a Christian, and you see that the local church is the body of Christ that loves one another as a family, how should you prioritize your life around the local church? Which leads to point number three, what is the goal of church membership at CCBC? You could even ask it this way. If you walked into the lobby earlier, you noticed we had a long piece of paper that's nicely framed. That's our church covenant. In joining this church, one of the things that we are asked to do and called to do is to examine what it looks like to commit our lives in the fellowship of this body until the Lord takes us home or moves us to another church. But if you read through that church covenant, I'd encourage you this week to read through the church covenant again. Do it tonight before you go to bed. Make it a part of your quiet time this week. You might be asking, really, at the end of the day, Pastor Blake, what is the goal of membership at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church? We've waited an hour for the answer. Guys, guys, you know it takes me a while to get to my point. Here's the answer. We want to move people from being only once-a-week church attenders to seven-days-a-week Christ followers. We want to move people from being only once-a-week church attenders to seven-days-a-week Christ followers. But friends, you can't do that on a podcast in your lazy boy, and you really can't truly obey the New Testament just dipping out for two hours on a Sunday morning. You can't do that unless you are dipped into the covenant community of a body of real Christians who really love Jesus, who take this book really serious. And when they say they love you, they really mean it. People who want to follow Jesus, people who love Christ, church, the local church. Friends, this is God's will for your life. My counseling room gets filled up all the time with all sorts of challenges and questions people have. And sometimes I don't know the answer. Sometimes I'm, I'm praying and I'm trying to search the scriptures and I'm going, I'm not quite sure. But there's one thing that I can pull out of my back pocket every time. Are you a follower of Jesus? Well, yes, I am. Are you a member of a local church? Well, not exactly. Well, are you married or you're not? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, are you alive or not? Well, uh, if you're a Christian, 
You call yourself a follower of Jesus. You've got the team jersey of baptism on you, but you're walking around like a free agent for Jesus. You're in sin. It is God's will. Along the way, you are under the authority and accountability and encouragement of a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching local church. There is no such thing in the New Testament as a free agent Christian. You're either of us or of the world. You're of one body of believers or another. There is no sitting in the back remote control Christianity. This is the real deal. This is what we're trying to do here at CCBC. We cannot live out the Christian life apart from the help of God's people. You see, our goal here is we want to see consumer-driven Christianity die in a place where commitment-based Christianity comes to life. Friends, if you read through the church covenant, you'll notice something. You'll notice that the words we and one another are all over the page. I and me is absent. Well, that's intentional. It was written that way to be a constantly and continual reminder we need each other as we follow Jesus. You see, sin is what frustrates this design. By nature, we want to hide. We want to hide who we are. We want to hide our junk. We want to hold back our resources and use it only on ourselves. We want to hold grudges, and we only want to serve people that make us comfortable. This is where the gospel smashes our selfishness. This is where the gospel smashes our selfish ambitions, our selfish motivations that we're all prone to gravitate towards. Friends, if you become a member of this church, it's not going to take very long that you will begin to experience some of life's greatest joys and life's darkest sorrows together. In time, we're going to face even harder times together. For some of us, we've been continuously going through that, even at the birth of this church. But we're going to do that together. Lastly, I want you to notice about the church covenant before we move on is the importance of gathering together on a weekly basis. This is not a preacher's hobby horse. This is the Bible's priority. It is normal for Christians to regularly gather on the Lord's Day, week in and week out. In our church covenant, we are reminded, unless providentially hindered, we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, prioritizing our weekly gatherings for mutual edification and worship to God as we eagerly anticipate the day of Christ's return. Listen, God's merciful. He's compassionate. There are legitimate reasons why members of our church might not be able to gather regularly with us. Those who are sick or bedridden, deployed in the military, have unique job shifts, and unique transitions in life in that way. There's also other legitimate reasons that you might miss occasionally, like vacation or inclement weather. Well, at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, we're not going to tag people, okay? I don't have some kind of smartphone app given to me about, did uh, Jackson make it into the second row today? And it gives me a buzz if he's not there. No, we don't do that. That's really weird. But if there's an unbroken pattern of not being with us in our gatherings when you really could be with us, it makes it really hard for us to love you. 
And it makes it really hard for you to fulfill the pledge you made in those church covenant vows when you joined this church. Like seeing an amputated arm removed from one's body, a Christian absent from the church body should greatly concern each one of us. As a pastor, I'm constantly looking over this flock. I know who the members are, first and last name, and the more the weeks go on, I get to know you at deeper and more personal levels. I'm constantly thinking about how you're doing. A pastor really has a hard time ever being off because this is deeply relational. I can stop preaching for a Sunday, but I'm still thinking about you. I love you, and I want to know how you're doing. And when you're not here for extended periods of time, I'm asking, are they struggling with doubts? Are they hiding in sin? Is their marriage okay? Is their son or daughter okay? Are they growing in the knowledge of God's word? Are they drifting in unbelief? Are they resting in the finished work of Christ? Brothers and sisters, the joys we experience in local church membership is when we gather together. It should break our hearts when we're separated. It should make us long to see each other again. When we see each other's faces. Lord willing, in the next 30 days, maybe, get you a little excited. Might even get to see our mouths move and hear one another sing. Sit under the same teaching together. Confess our sins together. And we greet one another in love. Friends, what's the goal of church membership here? We want to move people from only being once a week church attenders to seven days a week Christ followers. Lastly, and super quick, we should consider at least one potential danger that could threaten meaningful church membership at our church. Point number four, what is a danger that can threaten meaningful church membership at CCBC? Now, every church is going to face dangers and temptations galore. Every church is going to have their challenges. I don't have the time, bandwidth, and you don't have the mental energy to think of all of them. But I have one I do want us to be aware of and get out in front of us and pray for God's help with at CCBC. We must push hard against individualism and move towards church-shaped discipleship. We must push hard against individualism and move towards church-shaped discipleship. Brothers and sisters, we live in an iPhone and me church age. Scores of believers in places around this country, and trust me, they're all over Fort Smith and the River Valley. I've met them. Can treat the church like an add-on to the Christian life, like an accessory you wear. Something that's nice to have in your life, but it's not really essential to your discipleship with Jesus. But I hope what you've learned from today's sermon, which I would encourage you to listen to again and again, because it's going to be a foundational sermon for the life of our church. I hope you and I walk away seeing that the church is not some accessory to the Christian's life. It is the very central heartbeat that keeps us focused on making disciples of Jesus. At CCBC, we want to make it a prayer and priority to push back against the tendency to church shop and church hop 
and instead lean in to meaningful church membership. That means this, brothers and sisters, in case you haven't gotten the gist yet, we want to go deep in relationships with one another and not remain shallow in our conversations about spiritual things. Here's two practical ways that you and I can do this together. Number one, get to know as many members of this church as you're able to and go deep with a few. Friends, I'm going to push you a little bit. This is the daddy index finger going into the child's chest here. Avoid the rut of only spending time with people you've always known. Avoid the rut of only spending time with people you've always known. Listen, hold on to your long-term friends. Put on your Letterman jacket on Friday night when no one's watching and reliving the high school days. Cruising down Rogers, whatever y'all do. That's cool. Well, not really. uh, Probably things I don't want you doing what you did in high school again. But friends, push yourself outside your comfort zone. Surround yourself with believers who are gifted differently than you, who have personalities different than you. And I think this is what you're going to find. God has made the body of Christ beautiful. There are so many different ways God has built us. And it's amazing how God puts the right people at the right time to meet us right where we need them. Number two, prioritize spending time together weekly and especially in watching over one another's spiritual lives. Listen, I I realize this because I'm a man, I'm a human being, and I'm a pastor. Relationships take time. And being a new church, and doing church possibly way different than you've ever done it before, it can be intimidating at first. I know that. I'm sensitive to that. That's why I'm here for the long haul, to shepherd us according to God's beautiful plan. But friends, when we follow the example of our Lord, what do we see him doing? He pursues others and teaches them. He spends time with them and he prays for them. He warns and rebukes them for sin in their life and he comforts and encourages them with the words of life. Listen, starting this week, pray and consider what it would look like to rack up your breakfasts, lunches, and dinners your Saturdays from time to time, your Sunday nights from time to time with other members of this local church. Think intentionally through the membership directory of who you can get to know, to encourage, to pray for, and to learn more about Jesus and what he's doing in their life. I promise you, you will be more blessed than you realize. Well, let's conclude. Is Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church a perfect church? Well, no, they don't have a perfect pastor, so we're out on that one. Is Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church the best church? Nope. It's neither of those things. We have our problems. We have our inconsistencies, just like every other church. But nonetheless, the local church, from God's perspective, is something very special. And therefore, it should be very special to us. Listen to these words from Charles Spurgeon, which is really in our hallway, to be reminded of every week. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it. 
for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still and perfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. Why do some churches seem to be thriving while other churches seem to be dying? It might be because those churches have lost sight of the beautiful plan God has given us in the church. May that not be true of us. May we be, by God's grace, continually growing in our knowledge of Christ and his church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray you would take what was said today to build up your church at CCBC. I pray that we would take even one thing that was new or different or convicting to cause us to love Jesus and to love Jesus' bride, the church, even more. We ask all this in his name. Amen.